will need to keep your Bibles open to Luke 6. Anyone require a Bible? No one? But as you can see, we have a difficult passage before us. It's difficult because it is long. And in fact, a whole series of sermons could be preached just on uh, this passage alone. And we are attempting to do it in one. Uh, But more crucially, it is difficult because it's a passage which is familiar to many of us. And because we are familiar with so much of it, uh, we may tend to let what Jesus say go over our heads. We, We think we know it, but it doesn't really penetrate deep into our hearts. Because what Jesus says here is really so radical. It is counter-cultural, but we, we may think we know it. And so, Father, we, we need to pray, and I have a great and difficult task before me. So, let's pray together. Father, I confess my adequacy, inadequacy to preach on this. I need to trust completely in your sufficiency. I need to trust completely in your grace and goodness to each one of us that you care and you love us enough, that you will not let your word just pass us by, go in one year and out the other, but that you would, through your spirit, press home your truths to each heart that needs to hear. Father, we look to you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Now, right from the start, I need to uh, warn you not to make a mistake. Uh, not to make the mistake to think that the person giving the sermon is me. No, because that's Jesus. And we've heard Matthias read that sermon. You can think of this like one big after-church refreshment and we're just discussing the sermon. Okay, uh, We've heard the sermon already. The point is, it is Jesus who is the one who has given the sermon. It is he who's making those demands giving this teaching. And if we obey, it's because we are obeying Him. But also if we disagree, we are having a disagreement with Him. And as we heard that sermon, it sounds very much like the Sermon on the Mount, like the one that we find in Matthew 5, 6, 7. But there are noticeable differences. So what's happening here? Well, what's happening is that Jesus, like any rabbi, any teacher, is preaching a similar sermon on different occasions. right? Just like our own senior pastor is now preaching a sermon that he preached many years ago at ORPC, but with differences because he's adapting it to the audience. So this is the sermon on the plane because Jesus is teaching it on a level plane. So what is Jesus teaching? Well, you see in your outline that there are three broad topics. Reversal. Love and integrity. So the first one, reversal. Now in our study of Luke, we've already come across this idea. And you might ask where? Well, we saw it in Mary's song, where she speaks of the way God likes to act, of bringing down the proud and exalting the humble. Well, with the coming of Jesus, this this reversal of values actually becomes cemented into reality. 
the coming of Jesus, if you like, establishes a new normal where all these values are reversed. But why? What about the coming of Jesus that, that throws all our values upside down? Right? Everyone naturally will value wealth. Everyone is trying to get richer. No one's trying to get poorer. But what is it about the coming of Jesus that, that blessing is now pronounced on those who are poor? And woe on those who are rich. Now the Greek word for woe sounds like, oh, why? So, uh, it's, it's woe, right? It's, it's, it's uh, oh, alas, uh, lamentation. Why is that pronounced on those who are rich? Well, Jesus tells us. Look carefully at verse 20. You see that he's talking to disciples. And he says to disciples, Blessed are you who are poor. Why? For, because, yours will be the kingdom. Is that what your virgin says? No, look carefully. Is that what it says? No, it says yours is the kingdom. It's actually yours now. It's not will be, not pie in the sky, you know, by and by. It's not something that you will get in the future, but it's yours now. But on the opposite side, look at verse 24. But woe, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Now, why does Jesus say they have already received their comfort? That's because he's referring to the old kingdom of the world. In the old kingdom, what's valued is riches, is power, is success. And according to the rules of the old kingdom, those who are rich are the winners. So those who compete, those who live according to the rules of the old kingdom, they are enjoying the rewards, the benefits of the old kingdom. So why does Jesus pronounce woe, you know, oh why, on them? Simple. Because the old kingdom is passing away. Because Jesus is bringing in a new kingdom, the kingdom of God that will take over the old kingdom. Luke tells us at the end of chapter 4 that Jesus went around proclaiming the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God. And then we saw at the beginning of our passage, Jesus choosing 12 disciples. What's happening there? They are, in fact, the first members of his new kingdom. The new kingdom that Jesus was bringing in. Now, I've always wondered, why does Luke record what happens after that? You know, why does he record Jesus going around healing and then casting out evil spirits before launching into the Sermon on the Plain? I was thinking, 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 why is that there? Why does Luke put it there? Why did Jesus do that there? Well, I think we can understand it this way. Because in one sense... Sickness and evil spirits are evidences. They are structures, they are realities of the old kingdom. And Jesus, after choosing the nucleus of what will make up the new kingdom, he comes and he displays power and authority to heal sickness, to cast out the demons. And it can only mean one thing. As he chooses the twelve, as he forms the nucleus of a new kingdom, 
of the kingdom of God. And he comes displaying power, power that signals the expiry date of the old kingdom. With Jesus who has chosen a new kingdom, he comes and, and the writing is on the wall. The old kingdom will be no more. The curtain is coming down on the old kingdom. Because this guy who is bringing in the new, he has power to do that, to bring in the new kingdom of God. And so there is this reversal of values. Because the values of the new kingdom are different to the old. And so here again I will quote Michael Wilcock. Where he says, In the life of God's people, a great reversal of values will be, such that they prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks desirable. In other words, those who belong to the new kingdom can be recognized by this reversal of values in their lives. The citizens of the new kingdom will be marked by how they live according to the rules of the new kingdom and not competing according to the old rules. Now this doesn't mean, right? this doesn't mean that we have to be first financially poor before we can follow Jesus. No, no, it doesn't mean that. If not, none of us right, can do that. But sometimes, in following Jesus, as followers of Jesus, it will result in becoming poor. But we need to say that's okay. Right? We don't have to cling to worldly wealth because that's an old kingdom value. Instead, the, 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 the stupid and the foolish thing to do is to actually sacrifice the kingdom of God in order to get something that the old kingdom values. Right? And that's, that's the great danger for us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus. That we could be calling ourselves that, but be actually living for all the wrong things. To think that we are citizens of the new kingdom but actually be living and competing and playing by the rules of the old kingdom. But we need to ask ourselves this, right? That if Jesus Christ really did come, if he really did live the life he lived, if he really died in our place and is risen as our Lord, then the curtains has come down on the old way of living, the old way of living for ourselves, the old way of living for me. Christ's kingdom has come in. And life and blessing is, is found in living for Him. Living for the Son of Man. As verse 22 says, that's where true blessing is. Even though for a while now, that kind of life, that kind of living for Jesus without reserve, that kind of life might result in poverty and weakness, it might result in sacrifice and tears, it might result in, in hatred and exclusion. Because God's people are being taught to prize what the world calls pitiable and to suspect what the world thinks desirable. The first thing that Jesus teaches us, there's a reversal happening. And he applies this reversal to 
the next big topic uh, of love uh, or relationships and how the people of the kingdom are to conduct themselves in their relationships. And as I say the word relationships, you are thinking, okay, does this apply to all relationships? Does this, does this apply to marriage? And of course it does. Because Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Uh, it's alright, you can laugh. But I'm actually not trying to be funny. Because the point is this. If Jesus expects us to love our enemies, if he expects us to love even them, then of course, it's obvious that, that this love, this attitude, this behavior, we must show also to our families, our friends, our church mates. It can't be less than what Jesus is expecting. And so he teaches us, love your enemies. And Philip Ryken relates this true story in his commentary. A Turkish officer raided and looted an Armenian home. He killed the aged parents and gave the daughters to the soldiers, keeping the eldest daughter for himself. And sometime later, she escaped and trained as a nurse. As time passed, she found herself nursing in a ward of Turkish officers. One night, by the light of a lantern, she saw the face of this officer. He was so gravely ill that without exceptional nursing, he would die. The days passed and he recovered. One day, the doctor stood by the bed with her and said to him, But for her devotion to you, you would be dead. He looked at her and said, We have met before, haven't we? Yes, she said, We have met before. Why didn't you kill me? He asked. She replied, I am a follower of the one who commanded, love your enemies. I don't know what you think when you hear a story like this. I think, wow, amazing. But I also think, how can I do it? How, how can you and I show this kind of love? How can anyone do it? How is it even possible? Well, Jesus, wise as he is, has anticipated this question. And he gives the answer in verse 32 and onwards. He says in verse 32, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Now, and the, the next two verses repeat the same thing, right? If you, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you love someone because they love you, in a sense, you are not really loving them for them. 
you are actually loving them because you can get something back for yourself. Right? It's true even in um, in a crush, uh, in a, uh, when a boy loves a girl. So often it's because he, he, he loves this girl because he thinks how great it would be if someone like that would love me back. What, what, what that would do for, for my identity, my self-image, my ego. And so all of us are like that, Jesus says. All of us are loving someone else for what we can get back. Because we all suffer from a love deficit. Right? We, we, we need, there's so little love that we can give already. We need to love people and make sure that this love that we invest in them, we can get something back because we have so little of it. Now, Tim Keller had a great illustration to explain this. It's like two investors, right? One investor is just rich, right? He was one of those uh, who uh, gave money to Steve Jobs when he was starting out Apple in his garage. And, you know, he just invested in that and his stock just grew by, you know, a thousand times. And so he's just rolling in money. He's just rich. And so he can go. He has the ability to go, ah, this product, I like it. This this entrepreneur, I like his attitude. I'm going to invest in that. And, and it doesn't really matter whether it's going to get a big return or not. Because he's so rich, he's just rolling in it. But another investor, he's already facing bankruptcy. Right, right. Everything's in trouble. His, his house has been mortgaged two times already. And he has this amount of money and he needs to make sure what he invests in will get a return. He can't just look at whether he likes the product, whether it makes him feel good, whether he likes the attitude of the entrepreneur. No, he needs to make sure that what he invests in will get a return. If not, he's in trouble. Well, Jesus is saying all of us are like that second investor because we all have a love deficit. But the kind of love that Jesus is saying, commanding us here, love your enemies, do good to them, pray for them. He's speaking and commanding those who uh, will be like the, the first investor. But the question is, where? Where do we get this super abundance of love that we can just, just give love without needing to get anything back in return? And the answer is, in verses 35 and 36. Verse 35. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Now I know, just reading it like that, it sounds as if Jesus is saying, if you love your enemies, then you will get this reward. You will then become children or sons of God. But that's not the teaching in the rest um, of the New Testament. And the Greek in these verses actually don't mean that. Rather, they are more saying, it's because you are sons. That's why you act this way. It is spoken to disciples 
for whom God is already their father. And Jesus is calling them to be what they are. And as sons, we are to reflect something of the father. Right, like father, like son. And so, the father God, who has been kind to the ungrateful and wicked. The father God, who has been gracious to his enemies. We are called to reflect something like that. But the question is, still, where do we get this super abundance of love that we can love even our enemies? Well, answer this question. Who are the ungrateful and wicked? Who are the ungrateful and wicked that God has poured out love on? It's you! It's me. We, we were God's enemies that he has loved. Like Romans 5.8 tells us, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Don't look at how your life is going to think about whether God loves you or not. God has demonstrated his love. It's a fact of history. Christ has died. God has shown his love to you. You and I, we were the ungrateful. We were the wicked that God has poured out his love on and made us sons and daughters. It is in Christ that we have experienced this avalanche of love from the Father. And this is the only source of love that that when we truly begin to grasp, will enable us to love our family, our friends, to love brothers and sisters in church, to love them without ulterior motives, to love them for who they are, without needing to get anything back. That even when they are rough with us, even when they say an unkind word to us, we can still love them. Even when they are difficult to love, we can still love them. We can even love our enemies. When you grasp this love, because God has poured out His love for us, we have that super abundance of love. We are just rolling in it, if you understand this. It is when we are brought to see the ocean of unmerited love that God has for us in Christ. That even our enemies, we can love. But friends, the problem, I think, with some of us, is that we are suspicious of this kind of super abundance kind of love. God pouring his, his love, you know, like a waterfall. But so many of us are just content to stand at the side because we are saying to ourselves, I, I don't actually need so much love. Yes, I need some. All I need is a pale food. I'm not like those sinners who need to stand right at the waterfall eh, and get all this, get all this love. I just need a pale food. You know, a pale food will do for me. And the reason for that, I think, is because fundamentally we think I am not that bad. I am not that bad. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not that bad. I just need a pale food. I'm not like those sinners who really need to be cleansed and stand at the waterfall. But listen to the wise words of someone who has said, The mark of a Christian 
is someone who realizes, realizes that we are more wicked than we ever dared to believe. But at the same time, at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared to hope. Have you experienced this kind of love? Because it is a reality. God has demonstrated this love when Christ was hung on a cross 2,000 years ago. You need to take it, you need to see it, you need to believe it, you need to take it to the center of your life. It must move your heart. It must melt your soul. This kind of love is meant to do that. And when we see that we have this super abundance of love, we won't need to go around just loving selective people because we need to be affirmed, we need to be loved back. No. You are loved by the Creator of the universe. The one who holds all things in his hands, the one who sees all things, knows all things, and yet he loves you in Christ. That's the kind of love that will just free us to go and love and serve even those who hate us. The last topic is integrity. But you will not find the word integrity uh, in this passage. You will instead find its opposite. And the opposite is in verse 42, where Jesus says, You hypocrite! Well, hypocrisy is the lack of integrity. And the whole passage is dealing with this one issue. Now, Jesus uses many pictures, he uses many illustrations in this passage, but look at verse 39. He says, or Luke says, this parable, okay, it's singular, it's not parables, you know, plural, it's singular, this parable, and what follows is all these pictures. And the way I take it is, even though, uh, even though there are different, different pictures, different illustrations, it is one Parable. One point, one issue Jesus is trying to hit at. And it's dealing with how his disciples hear and and take in and obey his word seriously. That they not be hypocrites, but that they take and apply his teaching in their lives. Now, as I said, Jesus uses a lot of pictures. in this passage, but I'm just going to zoom in on one or two verses where he doesn't use a picture, where he just speaks plainly. He's not talking in parables, he's just speaking plainly. And you notice that that is in verse 46, where he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now notice, He is not simply talking to the Sunday Christian. Because this is someone who comes to him and goes, Lord, Lord. Now, when uh, the Jewish way of speaking, when when he repeats something, when he says, Maria, Maria, you know, it's meant to be uh, uh, denoting and and, uh, conveying passion. You know, so um, when I've done something wrong, I don't just go, Maria. No, go, Maria, Maria, forgive me, you know. 
it's an intensity of emotion. That's passion. And so this person is coming to Jesus and is going, Lord, Lord. But there's a lack of integrity here. Because this disciple doesn't do what Jesus says. Right? This is the person who, who wants the benefits of the kingdom of God. But in his heart, he's actually saying, I want to be the one who decides. I want to be the one who decides what job, which website, who I go out with, what I do with my money. I want to decide for myself. And the opposite of this is what Jesus says in verse 47. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my word and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. And then he goes on to show that picture we are all familiar with. But you see, it's someone who comes to him, hears what he says, and puts it into practice. In other words, Jesus is describing that the way to deal with a lack of integrity, the way to deal with a problem of hypocrisy, is to have teachability. The mark of a Christian, the mark of a disciple, is the one who is teachable. He hears the words of Jesus and puts them into practice. And so some questions as we end. How are we hearing the words of Jesus? How are we responding even to this sermon that Jesus has preached? What about Bible study? Do we find going for Bible study a bit boring? Can it be that it is because we come to the Word of God and we think we know what's there. We think that we are already conforming our lives to that part of the Word of God. And so coming to Bible study is a bit boring because we think we are hearing the things that we already know. We think it's telling us things that we have already done. How do we respond to correction? How do we respond to rebuke? How do we respond when we are shown by the Word of God, either in our own quiet time or, or someone brings it to our attention? What's our response when we are rebuked? What's our response when there's criticism? Friends, can I plead with you and beg you to see that there is no virtue. There's no virtue in having that image of being right all the time. right? That, that's not something to strive for. Having this image or having this reputation that I am always right, there's no virtue in that because let me break the news to you. You are not perfect. Even though you may be long in the tooth as a Christian, you are not there yet. So there's no need. There's no need. There's no virtue, there's no need to have that image, that self-reputation of being someone who is always right. Rather, what Jesus commands here, what he commands and what he exalts is the attitude which goes, ah, yeah, 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 the, 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 the attitude which is first to say, yes, I think I was wrong there. Ah, yes, yes, I think, I think this part was my fault. Yes, this, this part, I, I, I so far yet to go in order to conform. That's the attitude. That's what we should be striving for. 
And friends, I hope some of you, including I, we will take this home. We will want to do business with God. And if we seriously do business with God, that may result in some tears. But let me end with these words where Jesus says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, for Him bringing in a new kingdom. And for Him teaching us what the values of the new kingdom are. And we thank you for His love to us in turning us from your enemies now to your sons. And Father, we pray that we will not be so familiar with that that it no longer moves our hearts, no longer melts our hearts. But, oh God, you remind us afresh of the state we were in and help us grasp afresh the avalanche of love that you have poured out for us in Christ. And so free us and give us the resources to do as you did for us in Christ, loving even our enemies. All to your glory and our blessing. Amen.